Have you ever been desperate to get some kind of acknowledgement that God was there? You wanted something. Maybe it was a sign. Maybe you're making a big decision. It's like, God, I really need to know that you are there. There was a, a song that came out uh, back in the 2000, I think it was the year 2000 that came out. It was a song by Chris Rice. And the name of the song, it had a strange name. It was called Smell the Color Nine. And in that song, he was describing his desire to pursue God. And he said this, he said, I would take no for an answer just to know I heard you speak. And I'm wondering why I've never seen the signs they claim they see. Are they special revelations meant for everybody but me? Maybe I don't truly know you, or maybe I just simply believe. I remember that song came out when I was 25. I was listening to it. It so resonated with me because I can, I can remember back in those years, I think through the teens and even through the 20s, questioning everything. God, do I really get you? I, I mean, do I, are, are you getting closer to me or, or, or am I getting closer to you? Am I going about the right process? I mean, I'm going to church, and I, I'm praying, and I'm, I'm reading my Bible, but there was still a question mark in my mind. Am I doing this Christianity thing right? Are you hearing me? Am I going about the right way of pursuing you? In his book called The Pursuit of God, by the way, if you've never read The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer, I highly recommend it. Tozer talks about just that, pursuing God. And in that book he says, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Chris Rice continues in his song. He said, sometimes finding you is just like trying to smell the color nine. Which doesn't make sense, but that's the point. It does lead me to this question I want to talk about today. How does one pursue God? How does one pursue God? The text I want to look at comes from John chapter 14. We'll look at John chapter 14. We'll start with verse 8. We'll read down through verse 14. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 14, starting with verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father... And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You may be seated. Christ is our living hope. I say this week after week because it's easy to get it up here, very hard to get it down in the deep places, down in the recesses of our soul. It is not easy to grasp. And by repetition, I want us to understand why it was that John wrote the gospel that he wrote. So if you would, please read this off the screen with me, starting with a reference. John 20, 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is life. That is purpose. That is the promise of eternity with Christ, all wrapped up in the book of John. That's why he's writing us these things. And this text that we read this morning raises three important questions. Three questions we need to be asking ourselves in the pursuit of God. And I'd like us to consider these three questions as we go through the text. We'll go through all three. First of all, am I thinking right? Or you could say, am I thinking Christianly about God? Am I doing works for God? Am I praying in Christ's name? I want to talk about these three questions as we go through the text. Say These are vital when we talk about pursuing God. So the first question, am I thinking rightly about God? Now let's, let's catch up to where we are now in the text. Christ is in this very intimate moment with 11 of his 12 disciples. One disciple has already ran out. That would be Judas. He's gone to do the dirty deed that had been foretold. He's going to be going and betraying Christ. And immediately the disciples are kind of off. Peter, after asking Christ first where he was going, Jesus said that he would be leaving, and then following the question with another question, well, why can't I follow you? Then even making the bold proclamation, he would lay his down, life down for Christ, was then told that he would deny Christ. The other disciples are thinking, well, if he can do it, is that going to be my story too? Last week we saw Thomas ask what Jesus meant that he was going away and they would know the way. Thomas said, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? Jesus said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life and, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now we have another perplexed disciple. Philip speaks up, not really with a question, but a request. He wants, it's a request for clarification. We see it in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. What's going on with this? Why is he asking this question? These disciples of Christ, they, they have a high regard for Jesus, but there's still something really important that they do not get. Jesus has said it and said it, they still don't get it. They don't believe that Jesus is as full a revelation of God the Father as they can possibly receive. They want more. All through the Bible, people want to see God in His 
full glory. But John made it clear back in verse 18 of chapter 1 that no one has seen God, and for good reason. If we go back into the Old Testament, remember these disciples were very familiar with all the Old Testament verses. This is what they'd heard their whole life. That was their Bible, was the Old Testament. Look at what it says. Moses had a conversation with God back in the book of Exodus, Exodus 33. And it went like this. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. This is God speaking. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The full blast of God's glory, no human body can withstand it. We have to be prepared before we go into God's presence. Our human body as it exists right now is not made to, to be in the full presence of God. So there are places in the Old Testament where it says, though, people saw God. But it's in reference to a vision. And there are these incredible visions of God in the Old Testament. We see it in, in Isaiah in chapter 6. The Lord was sitting on a throne high and lifted up and his train of his robe filled the temple. There was another vision given by Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel had this vision of this otherworldly place. He said he heard the beating wings of the cherubs. And, as, and there was a sapphire throne. And then at times in the Bible, there's what we'd call a theophany, which is different than a vision. It's a, a visible revelation of the person of the Father, like a burning bush that Moses saw, or, or pillars of smoke and fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. And this, I believe, is what Philip is saying. He's saying, look, Jesus, all you've got to do is just show us this. Because you're telling us that we can see the Father when we see, but what we're saying is this is what is in our mind when you're talking about the Father. And we're not seeing that. The visions, the theophanies. It's understandable. You know, we all want to see God in this way. It's what our hearts are longing for. And the artwork gets better and better. But it's still a long way from the real thing. Philip's saying, you got to give us something more here. But what they don't realize is that in Christ, they have received the best and fullest revelation of who God is. I mean, they've, they've heard these about these images about the Father, but now they're meeting the very heart of the Father in the Son. Now, Jesus is going to be dismayed at what Philip says. Look at what he says in verses 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Have I been with you so long 
and still you don't know me. There's a, a tinge of sadness in his voice. Why don't you get it? Can't you see who I am? See, this is one of the main points of the Gospel of John. It's, it's what he said at the very beginning, that Jesus is the Logos, the Word. Now, it's important. I want to I dip into that word again. I talked about it way back in chapter 1, but it is a, a, a word with tremendous meaning that is very easy to miss, okay? I want to step back for a moment. Uh, the, the Greeks... The word that we simply translate word, logos. The Greeks had, had a whole pantheon of meaning for this word. 500 years before Christ, before Christ, for example, there was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And he saw a, a harmony in the universe. And he thought, well, this harmony has to come from somewhere. And he called it the logos. He wasn't exactly sure what it was. But he said, we're going to call it the Logos, that which held the universe together and gave it a harmony. Then, three, then 200 years after, after that, 300 years before Christ, Aristotle took the same word, Logos, to describe why humans could think rationally, why we can think and reason differently than the animals can. And then ultimately the philosophy schools of Greece taught that the Logos was the mind behind the universe. Now again, this is all before John wrote this. This was the meaning of that word, logos. And John came along and said, let me introduce you to that mind. His name is Jesus. Jesus was the missing puzzle piece in the philosophy of these Greeks. He was the one that made it all come together and make sense. And he's confronting Jesus is confronting the disbelief of these disciples he's like you don't get it John is going to get it and write it but he's telling them that that everything they're seeking to know and understand about the father can be found in him one commentator said it this way no material image or likeness can adequately depict God only a person can give knowledge of him since personality cannot be represented by an impersonal object He's saying, I know you want a vision. I know you want to see a pillar of fire. I know you want to see that, that massive train of the robe filling up the, the temple. But what I'm telling you is, you won't see God fully like you're seeing him right now in front of you. Those Old Testament representations weren't anything compared to who you have right here in front of you. And Jesus tells him again the, that it's the Father giving him the authority to say what he's saying. He's saying that the works that he's done should give them enough reason to believe that these are things only God can do. And then three times in these two verses, he says, the Father is in me. And then twice, that he and the Father mutually indwell one another. Now, what does that mean? Because the church is going to spend a few hundred years figuring out exactly what Christ is saying here. And these disciples are themselves having to put together the pieces of all Jesus is telling them. And he's explaining that he and the Father, not only do we have unity of purpose, but we have unity of person. Not that we are the same person. But rather they have a unity of essence. Essence is the word that the church has designated and has used 
for about 1,700 years now to describe this sameness and yet uniqueness of the persons. Now, if you're scratching your head right now, it's, that's okay. Because we're delving into this, this doctrine of the Trinity. And they had to determine what does Jesus mean here. And for 300 years, finally in 325 AD, all the church leaders came together at something called the Council of Nicaea and decided the best word to use to describe what the Father and the Son have is this similarity, this actual sameness of essence. It is not similarity, it is sameness of essence. The Holy Spirit shares the same essence. We'll learn about that next week. As a matter of fact, the most concise definition of the Trinity is one in essence, three in person. God's three persons, each with the same essence. This is what Jesus is explaining. So when we're thinking about the God of the Bible, we have the, the heart of God the Father, His essence that was fully revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we need. To understand the Christ in the Scriptures is to know the heart and the mind, the essence of the Father. See, it's like, it's like this. If you and I are just talking to each other, I mean, if we're just talking, you can see what I look like, right? You can, uh, and then maybe I'll share, well, you know, like, like where I went to school or, you know, where I'm from. But still, you don't really know me. You don't know me until I share my heart with you. You don't really know me until you find about the things that make me cry when nobody's looking. The things that have broken my heart. The very best and the very worst moments of my life. See, now you're getting to know me. Now you're getting to know that deep part of me, my heart. That's you. And the Son was the revelation of the heart of God. What made Jesus weep? There's something I heard about, about mothers once. It was actually, this was Elizabeth Stone. I don't know who said it first. But she said, making the decision to have a child, it's momentous. She said, it is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body she actually one author went on to say it's like having your heart clothed in flesh out there walking around jesus was the heart of the father out there walking around how do you think about christ how do you think about this relationship to the father and and how does this challenge your thoughts about who god is and part of the pursuit of god is knowing the Son as He has revealed Himself in the Word, as the revelation of the Father's heart and His mind. I want to consider a second question now to ask ourselves. Well, am I doing works for God? Am I doing works for God? Well, how does this come up in the text? Look at what Christ continues to say in these verses. It comes up in uh, verse 12, and this needs some explaining. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. It's a startling revelation. And much of what Jesus says here, it's hanging on 
faith. And it's a common command throughout the Gospel of John is believe, 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 believe. And the degree to which I think we can do work for God on earth and our pain tolerance keep doing it has a lot to do with the amount of faith that we have in him. And according to Jesus' words, here those believers will do not only what he has been doing, but even greater works than these. And why? Because he's going to, because, and this is, the, this is really important, look at that last phrase, because I am going to the Father. Well, first of all, well, what are these, these things, these greater works he's talking about? Well, it can't mean just more. One thought was, well, over the period of the course of the church, more and more people will be impacted. It's, it's about more, but that really kind of falls short. And it doesn't really mean more spectacular either. I mean, Jesus has done spectacular things. It doesn't get much more spectacular than raising someone from the dead, supplying all this food from a few fish and loaves. There's two clues to these works. One is found here in this passage that are the basis for these greater works. And I said it before, it's that he's going to the Father. In other words, there's a new order that's coming as a direct consequence of me returning to the Father. There's also a clue back in chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, is, that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So what does this mean, these greater works that the Father will show the Son? This is a reference to the resurrection. Followed by the return of Jesus to the Father, so that the disciples of Christ will know that this will also be their path. And the signs and works Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen. After he had been exalted, and only at that point could what Jesus had done be seen, those works be seen for what they really were. Now this passage can be abused and misused. And I know of pastors... Um, They've shown up at the homes of sick people, even on their deathbeds. They've accused them of having a lack of faith, or else they would be able to stand up and walk out. No. But the kind of works that we're talking about here, those kind of works aren't what Jesus is talking about. Rather that you and I, as followers of Christ, through how we live and act and talk, will more fully reveal Christ as we are moved along by the Holy Spirit. Again, we're not talking about more works or more spectacular works. We're talking about what can be accomplished by those living on this side of the resurrection. Because we reveal him, who he was and what his kingdom would be like. See, when Jesus was doing miracles, it was about revelation. Someone has said, well, he's doing supernatural acts. Interestingly, Jesus wasn't so much doing supernatural acts as he was showing what people, what the natural world was meant to be, though now it is unnatural because of sin. There will be in my kingdom no sickness, no death. That's what his miracles were showing. He's showing you what kingdom living is going to look like. We continue to reveal his kingdom through our conduct, our witness, and our, our love for others. We now carry the purpose for which Jesus did all those miracles. Does this make sense to you? 
We are here to make, even like it says on the wall, to make him known. And we see it start in the book of Acts. Christ um, is made known. The church is multiplying, and it continues on to this day. And, and see, this is what's wrong when we don't share the good news of Christ to others. It's our greatest privilege to talk to them about what Jesus did for them. And so the kingdom of God grows, and, and we get to be part of those great works for God. So part of the pursuit of God is being part of continuing on the work that he did and greater because we get to show everyone this is why Jesus did the miracles, to extend the kingdom out. That's part of the pursuit of God. And what is the most essential ingredient to these greater works to be done? It's in the next verse. Look at what Jesus says in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Whoa. What is essential to doing these works for God is prayer. And this fruitful conduct that we're talking about in our lives, making the kingdom known, these greater works all hinge upon the prayer life of the disciple. So the third question is, are you praying? And more specifically, are you praying in Christ's name? So what does that mean? At first reading, it kind of sounds like you're given a blank check. In other words, just ask anything. Just ask whatever and you're going to get it. Lamborghini, Ferrari, just, just, just ask. It's yours. But there's a condition here that you must understand if you're going to understand this verse. And it is that you ask in his name. Now, what does that mean? Does that simply mean, well, I just stick the words in Jesus' name at the end and it's in his name? Well, I don't think it's wrong to pray that. However, there's more to praying in Jesus' name than just putting the words at the end. Praying in Jesus' name means this. It means coming to the Father in prayer as Jesus' representative who is doing business on Christ's behalf. That means that when we pray in Jesus' name, we claim to be acting for him. And, and that means that we are praying subject to God's will. In other words, it's impossible to pray in Jesus' name and ask for something contrary to the will of God. Now, that needs more explanation. Now, it's also about coming to God the Father because of what Jesus has done. In other words, I can stand in the presence of God the Father. Why? Because of what Christ did. I can stand there declared righteous and holy because I've been made righteous and holy. That's how the Lord sees me as being in Christ. Even though I still sin and struggle with the flesh... He sees me as forgiven and his child because of what it is Jesus has done. And if what I'm asking for is consistent with the mission you have of expanding your kingdom on earth, please give it to me. Now, what we ask for is not always consistent with the will of God, obviously. Lazarus got well, but guess what? He still died. All the people Jesus healed ultimately died. It wasn't consistent with the will of God that all the people on the earth be healed either or Jesus would have healed them all so when we're praying in Jesus' name we are praying 
prayers consistent with the will of God. But we don't know the will of God. And that's okay. So what do we do? We ask. The Apostle Paul got this. You know, he described this thorn in the flesh in his letters. He, and God told him, no, I'm not going to remove it. Lord, Lord, please take away this thorn. We don't really know what it is. But God said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And uh, it was the will of God that this affliction stay present in Paul's life because it was giving him a deeper understanding of, of the grace of God. Because he got to experience the grace of God in his life. And that was greater, that was more important, more consistent with the will of God than having the thorn removed. More dependence on God. Did that mean Paul was wrong to ask? No. We pray. We ask. There's a, there's a great book called Prayer Letters to Malcolm. It was written by C.S. Lewis. He talks about prayers that aren't perfect. And don't always get answered. He says this. He says, Meantime, however, we want to know not how we should pray if we were perfect, but how we should pray being as we now are. Right? That's all we can do is pray as we now are. He said, It is of no use to ask God with a, what he called a fastidious earnestness. In other words, with a, a desperation, a perfect desire for something when our whole mind is in reality filled with a different desire he said we must lay before him what is in us not what ought to be in us now do i pray lord let me suffer with my pain in my back or hip just let no we don't pray that we pray god would take it away we pray that desire so do we always pray in the name of christ when you and i are praying no because we ask for things inconsistent with God's will. But don't ever let that stop you. Because what I want you to see is that one of the apostles himself was making requests inconsistent with the will of God. And that's okay. We don't know the will of God. We, we know it generally, but not specifically. So we pray. We ask, and it is okay to pray with those words in, the Jesus, in Jesus' name because as best we know, that's what we're doing. We don't know until we find out whether or not the prayer is answered. So putting this all together, pursue God on his terms by knowing him, doing his great works, and praying. And sometimes you'll be praying in the name of Christ. But by faith and trust, we always go to him in prayer. So in our pursuit of God, ask the questions. Trust that through the course of your life, you'll be both pursuing and finding God. I want to close with this story about Christopher Columbus. You know, when he, when he reached the Caribbean in 1492, he keep, the inhabitants that he made there, he called them Indians. He thought he had reached the West Indies, which consisted of India and Japan and China. That's where he thought he was. He didn't realize he'd hit the, the Caribbean. In fact, he was nowhere close to the South or East Asia. And, and in his path, think about everything between, if you're traveling from Europe and you hit the Caribbean, think about how much more there is between you and like Japan. There's a whole undiscovered 
hemisphere between those two places. And he assumed that the world was smaller than what it was. But as Dane Orland writes, he said, we've made a similar mistake with regard to Christ. He said, are there vast tracts of who he is according to the scriptures that are unexplored? Have we unintentionally reduced him to manageable, predictable proportions? Have we been looking at a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making, thinking we're looking at the real Jesus? Have we snorkeled in the shallows, thinking we've now hit the bottom of the Pacific? I would say, yeah. There's so much more to Christ than we know. Some more depths of his love. I want to leave you this quote from Tozer. What I'm anxious to see in Christian believers is a beautiful paradox. I want to see them in the joy I want to see in them the joy of finding God while at the same time they are blessedly pursuing him. I want to see in them the great joy of having God, yet always wanting him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what a great, great honor we have in pursuing you. Lord Jesus, let us pursue you not as we think you are, but as you know yourself to be. And God, I repent of my own failings and laziness and complacency in my pursuit of you. God, I pray that we will know you today better than yesterday. And tomorrow that we'll know you better than we do today. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing the Father. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself through the Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for continuing to help us grow and understand. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.